0: Let's praise God for just a second. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, worship team, and helping us to fix our eyes on Christ this morning. So today is a, <clears throat> a special day. It's a day that we're, uh, we're covenanting, are covenanting kind of um, renewing our wedding vows, if you will, uh, as two churches becoming one, reminding ourselves of... Um, of what it means to be the church the children are dismissing at this time. Um, uh, it's a beautiful, wonderful, incredible thing to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And what I thought we would talk about today is just a little bit of the wonder of the church from Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to pray for us one more time. King Jesus, we are here this morning because of you. Your sovereign, omnipotent hand has guided every single individual into this room this morning for a purpose. You have something you want to say to us. And Lord, we want to respond to you. All that we are for all that you are. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us today to feel the weight and the wonder and the glory of being part of the church of Jesus Christ. Help us to see with eyes of eternity. Help us to see what angels see as they look out on the world and we get so enamored by this and that, Lord, but there are eternal spiritual battles of of unspeakable glory happening all around us, Lord, if we would open our eyes to see. So help us to see what we are part of when we belong to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're recovenanting together as a body in Christ, saying that we want to be the church, Lord, that you have called us to be. A holy, humble, redeemed, set apart, eternally minded, watchful, self-sacrificing body of faith, committed to making sure that we all make it to the finish line together. That's what the church is for. And as we're going to see today, as we, one of the great graces of life is to be part of the church. And I want to see this specifically from a remarkable passage about the church in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might, cre- that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery... might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of God. So we're going to look at Three truths from this scripture this morning. Number one is that we're joined together by Christ. We're joined together by Christ. Number two, God inhabits us by the Spirit. God inhabits us by the Spirit. Number three, we are the plan to display God's wisdom. We are the plan to display God's wisdom. First, we're going to look at how we are joined together by Christ. Uh, We see this in verses 13 through 18 there. For Paul, the church exists because Christ died for his people. That is that through the cross, we are first reconciled to God, and then being reconciled to God, we also are reconciled to one another. So there's a vertical dimension of our reconciliation through the cross, and there's a horizontal dimension to our reconciliation through the cross. In redemptive history, the great dividing line was the Jew-Gentile distinction, right? If all you had was the Old Testament and that's all you ever read, you would wonder, okay, that's great for the Jews. But what about for me? What about for non-Jews, right? The whole Old Testament is about, pretty much about uh, Abraham and his descendants and the nation of Israel. And so the Jews, in Jesus' day, right, the Jews represented those who were close to God. Israel had real and immediate access, genuine access to the true God, and everyone else didn't. They just didn't. Uh, Gentiles, like me and you, if you're not an ethnic Jew, right? We were far off. We didn't have a clue. No promises, no covenants, no light, just spiritual darkness through and through. But what we see as we get to the New Testament is that it turns out that in the big scheme of things, right, in God's plan, it turns out that Jew and Gentiles really weren't that different. Even though the Jews had the law, and the Jews had the covenant, and the Jews had the promises, and the Jews had the, the, the deliverance and salvation, and all the things that the Jews had in the Old Testament, even though they had the, the law and the covenant, they still broke it. And even among us far-off Gentiles, we still had some light of nature, We had the light of the divine image stamped upon our hearts. We had the light of our own conscience that would bear witness for or against us when we sinned against God. And yet we still violated our own innate sense of right and wrong and and thus sinned against God. So it turns out that because of sin, because of our fallen nature, Jew and Gentile really are, are not that different. In fact, they're fundamentally the same. We're in the same fundamental predicament as every human being in the world. We have dishonored a holy God. We have despised and ignored in our lives the King of kings and Lord of lords so that we could sit on the throne of our lives. And the sure and fitting end for that kind of rebellion is eternal torment and wrath. If it wasn't for grace. So what happened? God, in a single moment, saved Jew and Gentile alike through the sacrifice of His own Son. So in one omnipotent, decisive act, God reconciled all peoples, Jew and Gentiles alike, by, by, by forgiving them through the cross. Because on the cross, God poured out His just and holy, infinite wrath due to the sin of His people on His holy, innocent Son. So that God could both punish sin and forgive the sinner. That's the gospel. And so the catch there is that on the cross, God poured out his wrath, but not on the one who actually deserved it. But on his son, so that we might be forgiven of our great sin against the great God. And by satisfying the demands of his justice, and by raising his son from the third day, God has proven and guaranteed once for all, that if you will turn from your sin and trust in the Son and surrender your life to Him and follow Him and bank on Him and rest on Him in, as your life and all and everything, he will, God will forgive you of all your sin, past, present, and future, and adopt you into the eternal family of God. And when that happens to you, you are the church. You're the church. Every saved sinner is part of God's family. And when two when two unrelated children get adopted by the same parents, guess what? They're family. The spiritual blood of Christ in our veins runs thicker than any human difference that may try to divide us. We belong to Jesus, and that changes everything. And so when we reflect on what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ in Dodge County in 2023, the time and place in which God has appointed for us, we should feel the weight of the glory of what it means to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. That no matter what happens in this life, in this world, in this church, What it means to be the church is that we're family. That we're united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that should run thicker than any difference that would try to divide us. It means that when we gather on Sunday morning, anytime we gather, this, this isn't just a club. It's not a community organization. It's not where we go to just feel happy about ourselves. It is, it is gathering together as the family of God, united by the blood of Christ to serve and adore our King. So, as we covenant together today, and we're going to protect the Lord's Supper in a little bit, we're going to read the church covenant before we do that. And then we have a, a, the copy of the covenant back in the fellowship hall, which we'll sign uh, when we get back there. When we do this together, what we're saying is we're just, not, we're just not out here today desiring just to be part of a new church. But what we're here to do is we're here to say everything that this book says that I am and I'm supposed to be for God and for other people, I want to do that with you and you and you and you and you. That's what we're saying. it's life and death it's heaven and hell it's 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 not we're not going on a cruise together we're climbing into a foxhole together and when we're on watch when, when someone's on when someone's out on watch it's because the life and death of the the life of my brothers and sisters is in my hands we are the church and we're joined together By Christ. Number one, we're joined together by Christ. Number two, the wonder of the church is that God inhabits us by the Spirit. God inhabits us by the Spirit. In verses 19, again, Paul said, You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so, in Paul's mind, right? The Paul is a Paul is an apostle. He was appointed by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the world, okay? And through the gospel, God is reconciling us both to God and to one another. Alright? He's taking people as, as separated as Jew and Gentile. Word. That's the high degree of separation. And he's saying, you're one family now through Jesus Christ. And, he is, and through the gospel, he's pulling people from every kind of identity and every kind of family. right? And he's pulling people from all these different groups and, and organizations and identities and nationalities and whatever. He's pulling people out of where they are into his family. Such that when you become a Christian before you are anything else, you're a Christian. It's your first your primary, your ultimate identity. It's the identity that trumps every other identity. When any other pool on your life conflicts with your identity in Christ, it's got to go. Because that's our first and primary identity is a child of God, a servant of Christ. And as the church, what Paul is saying is that as the church, we become the temple of God, the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Christ, and the Christ and the apostles were the foundation of the church, all right? They laid the foundation. There are fundamental realities. There are fundamental truths. The fundamental truths of the gospel and the fundamental truths of scripture. They're the, they're the ground. They're the foundation. Christ himself, the cornerstone upon which everything else is built, okay? It's like a building. But at the same time, that building, you know, you lay a foundation so that you can build a building. And the church is the building built upon that foundation, and salvation, as Paul as Paul's saying here, is not just the work of Christ; it's also a work of the Spirit. Christ did the work on the cross; the Spirit does the work in our hearts. When a person is gloriously converted, to see the beauty, wonder, glory, and grace of Christ, it is because the Spirit of God has drawn near to their hearts, has opened their eyes to see what they couldn't see before—that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is worthy of giving up everything if you have to, to have him. And when you see it, you can't unsee it. And that's a work of the Spirit. And the Bible says that if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, God's Spirit lives in you. It's not, it's not a matter of, you know, I hope God's Spirit lives in me. No. If you're a Christian, God's Spirit lives in you. That's what a Christian is by definition a possessor of the Holy Spirit. And by the Spirit, Paul says, we are being built into a dwelling place for God. So if you go back and you read the Old Testament, right, you had the tabernacle, all right? So after the after deliverance from slavery in Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai, God commands them to build a tabernacle. And in the, in the way that they were to encamp in the wilderness, right, the tabernacle was smack dab in the middle of the camp, all right? And so the tabernacle was what? It was the place... It was the place where God dwelt with his people, right? Then you fast forward a little bit and you get to the temple that uh, uh, Brother Ron read earlier about the, the dedication of the temple. The temple, again, was once Israel entered the promised land, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God manifestly dwelt with his people, all right? But there was a problem with Israel. If you've read the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about. And that is that because God is holy, he has to have a holy dwelling. Let me say that again. Because God is holy, God has to have a holy dwelling. The problem with Israel consistently throughout the Old Testament was that they failed to be the holy dwelling place for God because of their sin. Right? You see, they needed something more than God among them. They needed God in them. Because just God among them, it wasn't enough. They failed over and over and over again. And this is the work of God by the Spirit. God solved this problem, this fundamental human problem, not just a Jewish problem, a human problem of we can't love and serve God as he's worthy of. We can't. And so God solved this problem once for all through the sending of his son and through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, such that now when we look to Christ in faith, we are changed, we are saved, we are born again by the Spirit of God. And God lives in us, and he gives us the supernatural ability to do what we cannot do on our own. Love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. We can do this because not, God is not merely with us, but because God is in us. Which means we are the temple of the living God. We are. We are the temple of the living God. You want to go to a place where God's presence is there in a special way? Go to church. Go to church. Because if you're saved, the Spirit is in you, and in you, and in you, and in you, and in you. God is here. Where his people are. And so what we're doing today is no small thing. It's a journey empowered by the Spirit of God himself. It's joining hearts and hands together as a local body in Christ by faith. And it's worked by the Spirit. And as, as, as the temple of God, right? The Holy, this is how it works. The Holy Spirit, you don't, you don't clean yourself up to come to God. You come to God and he cleans you up. The Holy Spirit makes a holy person. So when the Holy Spirit comes into you, he changes you. And we together are those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit. And so we should be a a church and a place who walk in the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit. A place where when people show up, they say, I don't know what's going on there, but I know God's there. Because he lives in us. So again, what is it? It's not a club. It's not a hobby. It's not us dating each other. It's being a brick that is being joined together. The masonry work of God. The temple of God by the Spirit. It's an unbelievable thing to be the church. We are the temple of God because God inhabits us by the Spirit. Number two. Finally, number three, we are the plan to display God's wisdom. We are the plan to display God's wisdom. In in chapter 3, verse 6 there, it says that the mystery, this mystery, uh, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known in the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what does this mean? This is incredible. It says that we are the plan... The church is the plan to display God's wisdom. That's what it says. So that means that for Paul, right, the church isn't an accident. The church isn't plan B. The church isn't God sent his son and he was like, oh no, they killed him. What am I going to do now? The church is plan A for the world. There is no plan B. The church for Paul is the fulfillment of an ancient promise the church for paul is the revelation of an ancient mystery that was hidden he says for ages in god but has now been made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and so how does this work well the bible says that like the bible says that we were made in the image of god But then, it didn't take that long, and we fell. We rebelled against God in our sin. And so God had a plan the whole time to redeem his people, and that plan centered around a man named Abraham. And and it centered around the Jews. But, of course, the question was, well, what about the rest of us? Well, then when you get to the New Testament, this is the mystery that Paul's talking about. The mystery is that the Jews thought, you know, well, we Jews got it good. So sorry for everybody else. But the plan all along was that God would save the whole world Through the Jews, by sending his son born under the law, Paul says, Jesus, the son of God, born a Jew to save the whole world. So that that through the gospel, we become, Paul says, partakers of the promise, members of one body in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In verses 8 and 9 there, Paul talks about his, his calling to to be the apostle, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay? And so for Paul then, for Paul to preach the gospel, to tell people about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for him it wasn't just, oh, you know, that's a good thing Christians ought to do. For Paul, telling other people about Jesus was literally him participating in an eternal plan of God. It was Paul taking his place in the story of the world in which God is redeeming lost and rebellious sinners out of the world and out of the grip of sin and Satan back into the family of God. And he and and. And Paul got to participate in the plan of God. God called him and God chose him to be his instrument to fulfill the eternal plan of God. So when we, when we come to church and when we tell other people about Jesus and when we live out the gospel, we're not just doing good Christian things. We're literally stepping into the eternal story of God and fulfilling his plans and purposes For the world. And Paul says that this was also, he says in verse 10 there, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, God did all this to show, to show the world what he's like. There are things about God that we would never know if it wasn't for the gospel. The manifold wisdom of God, the word manifold means diverse, many, multifaceted. And so what are some things about God's wisdom that is revealed through the gospel? Just a few things. Number one is God's holiness. God's holiness. God's perfect holiness means that sin isn't a small deal. You see, this is where we get sin wrong as a society because we, we, we misunderstand it. Sin is the severity of a sin has little to do with the nature of the sin itself and has everything to do with who the one, who the one is being sinned against. Sin against an infinite God is an infinite sin. We, we think so little of our sin because we think so little of God. What does the gospel say? The gospel, the church, the existence of the church reveals God's holiness. Because, the, because your, your sin, my sin, was so filthy, so dark, so black, only the murder of the Son of God could pay for it. It's the holiness of God, and we would not understand that without the gospel. We would also would not understand, number two, God's justice. Because God is holy, sin cannot go unpunished. When someone wrongs you and you have that internal longing that there should be some kind of retribution, some kind of punishment so that person understands what they did was wrong, right? that sense of justice innate in you is imprinted upon you because you're made in the image of God. And God has a, And God has a moral revulsion to sin that is perfectly just and perfectly holy. And the gospel shows us how profound that is. The gospel tells us that sin cannot be ignored. It cannot just be swept under the rug. It's a big deal. And that every sin will be punished, either in Christ, for those who trust in him, or in the sinner themselves, for those who reject him. No one in the end gets away with anything. And it's really not until you understand that, it's not until you grasp the weight of God's holiness and justice that number three, God's grace, means anything at all. You, grace isn't amazing if God didn't do something amazing. If your sin wasn't a big deal, God didn't do anything amazing. You know, it's kind of like what Jesus said, if you love those who love you back, You hadn't really done anything that great. Anybody can do that. Guess what? God didn't love people who loved him back. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If sin never entered the world, we would never know that God was a gracious God. If humanity had never sinned, then we would be in perfect fellowship with God. But in a sense, we would deserve no less. Simply doing what we were made to do. But because of sin, we learn something amazing about God. And that is that the the holy and just God is at the same time a gracious God who who will stop at nothing to redeem his fallen people. From the penalty of their own sin. And this is grace. And it's put on display through the gospel in the church. And the final thing we see, the manifold wisdom of God, is God's redemptive power from Genesis 2 to Revelation 22 God is working out a plan in human history. We see for example God putting a man in the garden in Revelation 2 and then in Revelation 22 we see a man in the garden city where the where the where the tree of life is there once again and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. We learn that through the church God's We learn that through the church, God's plans and promises cannot fail. That we are his plan, and he's still at work in us. We are the plan of God. The point this morning is just for us to revel and delight in and just be in awe and wonder of the glory of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. You know... In the world's eyes, the big things, the important things, the interesting things that happen in the world happen in Washington, D.C., happen in Hollywood, happen on Wall Street. But in God's eyes, the things that are happening that angels are flipping out about happens in the church. When some... When, when, when someone makes a million dollars on Wall Street, angels aren't rejoicing. When a, when a lost sinner with an eternal soul finds eternal forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, the angels are flipping out. That's the amazing things that are happening in the world. That's the incredible thing. That, the things that are written in the history books of heaven ain't the same things written in the history books of earth. The greatest people in heaven will be people that you've never heard of. They just gave their whole life for Jesus over and over until they met him. Those are the great things that happen in the world. It happens in this room because it happens in the church. We are God's manifold wisdom put on display in the world. We are God's plan for the world. This is the wonder of the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege to be here. To be part of, of your church. And not just any church, God. But to be part of this church. To be part of a people. Who want to pursue you with all that we are. Make us such a people, oh Lord. Help us to be such a people, O oh Lord. To watch out. To sit in that foxhole together. Laboring, serving, watching for you. What a wonder, what a privilege, God. Thank you. Lord Jesus, I don't know, you know. Maybe there's some in this room. I'm sure there are. Who have yet to become part of your church. Because they have yet to turn away from their sin. And turn to you and trust faith, and surrender. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would pour out your spirit at this very moment, calling, causing them in their hearts to cry out to you. Say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Change me. God, would you bring people into the church today? What a precious gift that God, we love you, we adore you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.